to yet another episode of Hope Awakens. Glad to have you along on this journey and a special welcome to our first time viewers. If you missed this morning's program on the Mark of the Beast or any other previous messages, then you really need to catch up. You can do that by going to the catch up area on our website, hopeawakens.com.au and look for program number 15. It was fantastic. Now, if you missed our last decision card, you still have time to respond. To get your decision card from our last program, take out your phone and text the code word FAITH. So if you're in Australia, text FAITH to 0428 833 386. If you're in New Zealand, text FAITH to 875 and then follow the instructions. John Bradshaw's program tonight is Ancient Empire's Modern Mysteries. But first, Robbie will answer a few questions. Thanks, Robbie. Good to be with you, Rebecca, and our viewers once again tonight. I'm really enjoying our question time, so let's go straight to it. Question number one. John said the sea in Bible prophecy represents regions of large population. Why did he say that? Well, that's a great question. We find the answer in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15. Notice what it says. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So you can see from the Bible itself that the sea in prophecy represents multitudes of people or large masses. Question number two. How do we really know from the Bible that the final conflict will center around the Sabbath? Thanks for that question. Firstly, we notice that the final conflict is connected to worship. Notice this from what's called the third angel's message. Then a third angel followed him saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink from the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Secondly, you'll notice that the final conflict begins with Satan, who is the dragon, being angry with those who keep God's commandments. Notice what it says in Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, the battle against God's people ends with the third angel who says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So you see, the issue in the end times will be over who people will worship. And these people in Revelation are ones who worship according to God's commandments. Finally, John tells us in the first angel's message how God's people worship him. It says, Worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Now, this is a direct quotation from the Ten Commandments, specifically the Fourth Commandment or the Sabbath Commandment. So it's pretty clear that Revelation is indicating that the end-time issue will center around the commandments, but specifically the worship commandment. Question number three. I fear that if I should die, I would not be ready for Jesus to come. How can I have the peace of knowing I am right with God. 
Well, I just want to thank you for your honest question. I think Isaiah 44 verse 22 will help. Notice what it says. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Did you see what that verse just said? God has said that he has already redeemed or purchased us. He's already forgiven. He's already blotted out the sins. What he is waiting for is for us to return to him and to turn away from our sins and turn to him with all our hearts. So if you will turn to God with all of your heart sincerely, he will accept you. Come as you are. Come to him and get peace. Jesus is coming soon and he wants you to be there with him. Now, once again, we know that many of you are enjoying this series, Hope Awakens, and you want to go deeper. So again, we're reminding you that we have an exciting opportunity very soon of masterclasses, where we will connect you with various expert teachers across Australia and New Zealand in various topics. If you're interested in joining a masterclass, take out your phone now and text the code word LEARN. If you're in Australia, text LEARN to 0428-833-386. If you're in New Zealand, text LEARN to 875. Again, if you're in Australia, text LEARN to 0428-833-386. Or if you are in New Zealand, text LEARN to 875. We'll send you a link that you can click on your phone and you can fill in some areas of interest and we'll let you know what topics and when they'll be available for you to enroll in. Well, that's all I have time for tonight. So back to you, Rebecca. Thanks, Robbie. Don't forget to send us your questions by clicking on Ask Question on our website, hopeawakens.com.au, and we'll do our best to answer them. If we don't answer yours on the program, someone will contact you with an answer. Well, let's join John Bradshaw for the next part of Hope Awakens. Let me pray with you now before we dig into the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we look to you. We have faith in you. We trust in you. Or where, if we're honest and we say we are failing a little there, strengthen us. Come close to us. Bless us now as we go to the Word of God. We want to see Jesus. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, President of Iraq, Saddam Hussein, set out to rebuild the ancient city of Babylon, about 60 miles southwest of Baghdad. He intended to build a replica of Nebuchadnezzar's palace right on top of the ruins of the original. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he even had his name stamped on many of the bricks that would be used in a building project. But Saddam was attempting the impossible. The prophet Jeremiah had said around the year 600 BC, for out of the north, a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate and no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. 10 verses later, Jeremiah said, she shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. And that's how it is today. Here's what we know. God's purposes will be carried out. Now, his plan was to create a perfect world filled with people ready for eternity. That plan was interrupted 
But God implemented the plan of salvation and Jesus came to the world to die for our sins. God was not caught by surprise. The Bible calls Jesus the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The enemy of souls planned to ruin what God had set out to do, but the devil's plans were interrupted. We see this again and again, evidence that God's purposes will be carried out. What God intends will happen on his schedule and it won't happen on our schedule. But his purposes know no haste and no delay. At the Tower of Babel, it seemed that the world had turned away from God and were ignoring his will. Genesis 11 verse 4. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. This was rebellion, pure and simple. How could there ever be a people looking for the Messiah to come to the earth if these plans were carried out? Surely there was no way. Back to Genesis 11. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they will begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. God's intention was that people would fill the earth. But even though they camped around the Tower of Babel with designs on getting to heaven by their own devising, they couldn't frustrate the purposes of God. Multiple examples of this sort of thing. In this great spiritual war in which we are caught, there was an attempt made to prevent Jesus from ever being the Messiah. Israel was very nearly destroyed. They went into captivity in Egypt. And as we know from the famous story, Pharaoh did not want to let them go. When they made an escape after that first Passover, they were pursued down to the Red Sea. Only a miracle got them out of Egypt and saw them on their way to the promised land. In fact, it was a series of miracles. God sent 10 plagues, miracles, every one. He prevented the seven last plagues from afflicting Israel. Miraculous again. Then there was the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, and the Red Sea miraculously opening up and then closing again. God's purposes would not be frustrated. In the days of Esther, a decree was issued that all Jews would be destroyed. But by a series of miracles, that decree was turned around. In the end, it was the wicked man Haman who lost his life while Israel was blessed. God's purposes would not be frustrated. Maybe the greatest example of this was regarding the birth of Jesus. After Jesus was born, a jealous King Herod wanted Jesus killed to prevent what Herod thought would be the rising up of a rival king. But an angel warned Joseph in a dream and Jesus and his earthly parents escaped to Egypt. There were attempts made on the life of Jesus. At one time, in the very town in which Jesus had been raised, he was taken up onto a hilltop to a cliff. The intention of the mob was that Jesus would be thrown off the cliff. But somehow, 
Jesus managed to evade those who wanted to take his life. John 10, 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Verse 39. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. God's purposes would not be frustrated. So look ahead with me. The Bible says that Jesus is going to return. Any reason that wouldn't happen? None at all. Think about this. God purposes that you spend eternity with Him. Is there any reason that should be frustrated? None at all. Down through the years, evolutionists have risen up to pour, to pour scorn on the idea that the world appeared as the result of a special creation process. They've denied that it was carried out by the direct intervention of God. And of course, related to that, promoting the idea, there is no God. Atheists and agnostics have increased in number. Christianity and Christians frequently are the butt of jokes and the target of ridicule. Now, I thank God that we live in a country where people have the right to disagree if they want to. And please don't think I'm going after people who don't believe what I believe. I'm simply saying, and I am saying, that none of this has frustrated the purposes of God. In recent years, there have been loud predictions, prediction after prediction, that the church will disappear altogether. But so far, the church is still sticking around. Now, it needs to be pointed out that certain things have been confused along the way. That's important. We've seen during our time together that some very plain teachings of the Bible have been mixed up down through time. And I don't simply mean that you get some people who look at the Bible this way and some people who look at it that way. As long as there are people, there'll be different points of view, and that's okay. But when those disagreements prevent people from really knowing the character of God, and when they turn people out of the path of God, then it becomes a problem. And that's what we see down in the end of time. Now, remember, we have seen the everlasting gospel spoken of in the book of Revelation. We'll look at it right now. And as we begin to, let's remember that the word gospel means good news. And we take it to mean the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. In fact, let's look at this now first. This is Paul giving us one of the clearest biblical definitions of what the gospel is. We start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve, and, and so on. Now we saw that. Here's the good news. Jesus died for our sins. When sins separated us from the Father, when there was absolutely no way back for the human family, Jesus said, I'll bridge that gap. I'll die and give them credit for my death. I'll live a perfectly righteous life and give them credit for my righteousness. And I'll work in their hearts so that sin doesn't have to govern them, doesn't have to master them. Then we read, Jesus was buried. 
he really died. They placed his body in a tomb. He died in a human form and was buried in Joseph's new tomb. Bible told us he died according to the scriptures. Jesus was the fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel. He was the fulfillment of prophecy. The Bible said Jesus rose again, demonstrating he has power over the grave, power over death, power over the enemy of souls. And then Paul wrote that he rose again according to the scriptures. Again, what happened was the fulfillment of scripture, the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel and the world. It was evidence that Jesus indeed was the promised Messiah. He was then seen by Peter and a whole lot of others. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. He was seen. And it was all forecast in the scriptures well ahead of time. There's never been a story told anything like this one. The divine son of God was willing to take your sin upon himself. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Sin for us. If you have no sense of the sinfulness of sin, this might not get you your attention. But if you'd consider for a moment that Jesus became sin for us, it's clear that we're talking about a God who was prepared to go to any lengths necessary to redeem humanity. And think about this. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Look, it's one thing to die for your friends. Jesus died for his enemies. This is the gospel story. There's no greater story. Someone died for you. Someone took your guilt, took your sin, took your shame so that you can stand before heaven and earth and boldly declare, I've been redeemed. What a story. Come on, what a savior. What do you do with an offer like that? What if a stranger, a perfect stranger, paid off your mortgage, paid off your college loans? You'd hardly know what to do. What if someone donated a kidney so you could live? You'd feel so grateful. Jesus has gone so far beyond. He gave his life. Jesus, who had existed from all eternity, gave his perfect life so you could have eternal life. What do you do with that? Don't you grab it with both hands? Don't you thank him for it and believe it and accept it? That's the gospel. That's the good news. And he did it so he could change your heart and change your mind and change your nature and fill you with hope and love. What a story. And it's all true. So in Revelation, we see the everlasting gospel expressed. The everlasting gospel is the gospel. We just looked at that. Although in the book of Revelation, additional details are supplied, talking us through the transformational experience of a life connected to the God of heaven, especially down here in the close of time. Let's look at it. Starting in Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, 
Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of waters. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, we've looked at some of this. An angel flying in the midst of heaven. A messenger with a message. A message so important, it's depicted as being loud and right up there in the midst of heaven where everyone can see and hear. The message goes to everyone because God wants everyone to be saved. And we're told, fear God reverence, respect. If you want to think of this as involving a little holy fear, I'm okay with that. But don't for a minute think that God wants those who love and serve him to be terrified of him. He does not. Fear God and give glory to him. Live a life of obedience. Live for the honor and the glory of God. For the hour of his judgment is come. We know we're living in the time of heaven's final judgment. That's going on in heaven right now. When will it end? Only God knows. But knowing it is going on right now reminds us that the sands are rapidly running through the hourglass of time. And worship him. Ah, yes, but let's go on. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Now, you know that that's a direct quote from the Old Testament. And where in the Old Testament? It's a quote from the fourth commandment. So when God says here, worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water, it's very clear that God is calling us back to the worship that he gave the world in the beginning. You know that God created a perfect world. His intent is to get this world back to how he originally intended it, how it was supposed to be before sin entered the world. And God's plans will not be frustrated. God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And he reminds us of that here. A call to worship in spirit and in truth. We look at where it warns us against receiving the mark of the beast. And what do we know about that? We've studied the mark of the authority of the first nation in Revelation 13. We know what it is now. God is calling us to lean on him, to trust in him, to allow his will to be done in our lives and not to follow the commandments of a man or a system or a church. God promises us he will fill our lives so much that his will will be done in our lives if we allow it. I'll tell you something about the Seventh-day Sabbath. It's a sign of righteousness by faith, a sign of the gospel. Here's why. In fact, I'll share a story with you to make the point. God told Abraham and Sarah they would have a son. That son would be Abraham's heir. But Sarah said, we're just too old. So let's help out God. Abraham, why don't you and my servant Hagar have a child? 
Now, I don't know if that was in Hagar's job description when she accepted her job with the Abraham family, but that's how it played out. They had a child, Abraham and Hagar. The child was named Ishmael. Question for you. Was that child, even though the firstborn, the child of the promise? No. Was that child a child? Yes, Ishmael was a child. But very evidently, Ishmael was not the child of promise. So then Abraham and Sarah said, okay, let's do things God's way and trust him. And Sarah conceived at 90 or so years of age. And Isaac was born. Was Isaac the child of promise? Well, yes, he was. Both were children. Both were boys. But one arrived in faith and one did not. One was born as the result of surrender to God. One was not. Let's put it another way. One child was the result of faith. Lord, we'll do it your way. And one was not. When they said, Lord, we'll take care of this our way. Now, when God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and we say, you know what? No, I'll bring you a replacement. I'll bring you Sunday. That's not faith. Even when it's done for seemingly good reasons and with the best of intentions, you can't get a better reason for switching out mothers than one of the prospective mothers being in her 10th decade of life. I can imagine Sarah saying, oh, please, no. But that wasn't God's plan. So someone who says, oh, it might not be what God asked, but we worship God on that day and we sing and we listen to the word of God. That's exactly the same thing as Abraham taking Hagar and saying, it might not be the woman God had in mind, but we ended up with the same result. No, Ishmael represented the works of man and a lack of faith. Humans doing their own thing, bringing God their own ideas, like Cain, bringing the wrong offering way back there at the beginning. He was doing his will, not God's. Did he bring God an offering? Yes, he did. But it wasn't what God had asked for, so it wasn't an act of faith. Faith was Abraham and Sarah saying, let's do what God says. Let's trust God in this. A substitute Sabbath day is humanity saying, we hear God, but we are going to do our own thing. That's works. Faith says we'll give God what he asks for. We'll simply yield to God because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. So let's come back to the message of the second angel. Revelation 14, verse 8. And another angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, why are we talking about Babylon? Babylon was that ancient kingdom led by Nebuchadnezzar. It was conquered by the Medes and Persians in 539 BC. It's been gone for more than two and a half thousand years, but here it's back, just pops up out of nowhere halfway through the last book of the Bible. Clearly, we're not talking about a revived, literal Babylonian empire. Ancient Babylon was the mighty kingdom that desolated Israel. And even though Babylon was destroyed, and although the Bible says it won't ever be rebuilt, Babylon features again in the book of Revelation. How do we understand this? Remember, in Revelation, John uses Old Testament imagery to make a lot of his points. When he wrote about Babylon being fallen, his readers would have said, we know what he's talking about. That happened before. Tensions between Babylon and the Medo-Persians came to a head one night as the Babylonian king Belshazzar hosted a party in his palace. Babylon was still ruling, but that was about to change. Stick with me. We're going to read a chunk of Daniel chapter five. 
Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Imagine for a moment what that would have been like. In fact, the Bible says the king was terrified. Now down to verse 18, here's Daniel interpreting this. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whoever he wished he executed, whoever he wished he kept alive, whoever he wished he set up, whoever he wished he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne. They took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men, his heart made like the beasts. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, and you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords and wives and concubines have drunk wine from them, and you've praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which don't see, hear, or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hands and owns all your ways, you have not glorified." The writing was on the wall for King Belshazzar. Here's what it said. It said, Mene, mene, tekel, upharsin. And Daniel interpreted this. He said, This is the interpretation of the word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The Bible says that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being 62 or so years old. Babylon had fallen. Why? They took the holy vessels of God to be used in true worship. And they knew that. And they used them for common purposes. They desecrated that which they knew was holy to God in worship. They took what was meant for a holy purpose and willingly used it in an unholy way. We see a clear parallel in Revelation 14. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. There's a call to worship the creator, to worship Jesus, the active agent at creation. And right there in that call is a call to keep God's seventh day Sabbath holy. In fact, the verse contains a direct quote from the fourth commandment. This call goes to the whole world. Everyone's going to hear and understand just as Belshazzar knew those cups were holy, all will know the Sabbath is holy. And then the message will be repeated that Babylon has fallen. We find a fascinating contrast in the book of Revelation. Two women. Let's look at the first one in Revelation 12. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, 
on her head a garland of 12 stars. In prophecy, a woman symbolically represents a church. Here we see a picture of the Christian church down through the ages, the pure woman in Revelation 12. But then there's a second in Revelation 17. Let's start reading. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet-colored beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. On her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. If it's a woman... And this woman represents a church, not like the first woman, pure. This one's the opposite. So why is she called Babylon? Remember, at the Tower of Babel, the languages were confused. Modern Babylon represents spiritual confusion. Today, let's be honest, Christianity has a lot of confusion when it comes to the Word of God. Verse 2 said, the world is drunk with the wine of her fornication, her impurity. It's been said that wine can represent doctrine or teaching. And if we found that there's confusion across the religious landscape when it comes to the teachings of the Bible, we know that's true. Do you think that's how God wants it? No. If you think with me, you will realize there are two major teachings, errors, confusing people today. I'm not being critical of people, not in the least. But we know that there's an enemy doing everything he can to lead sincere people away from God's plan. Notice verse 5, which calls this church a mother. If she's a mother, she has children. And here her daughters are represented as women, meaning other churches, daughter churches. Let's talk about those two errors. It's fascinating that a teaching as clear as what the Bible says about death has become so confused. What many people today believe comes not from the Bible, but from Greek dualism. The idea of the philosophers, that the body dies, but the soul lives on forever. It's not found in the Bible. It's just not there. But instead, it was delivered to the philosophers, to the mother church, and other churches who have borrowed their teachings from her. The Bible says, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. It's about as clear as anything can be. It was Rome who delivered the teaching of the immortality of the soul to modern Christians, like a mother sharing her ideas with her daughters. And now look at this in Revelation 14. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, We've discovered that the mark of the authority of that nation mentioned early in Revelation 13 is Sunday, in contradistinction to the Bible Sabbath. God gave us, in His Word, the seventh day as a day of rest. Today, people everywhere have lost sight of that. It's fascinating to me that while we all accept that humans function on a daily circadian rhythm, a 24-hour cycle, it has emerged that humans also function on a circuseptin rhythm, 
a naturally occurring seven-day cycle. According to some scientists, it's programmed right into us, a seven-day cycle. Do you think God knew that? I think he did, considering he did the programming. And so God gave us a seventh-day Sabbath as a joy, as a blessing. I don't think anybody has a problem with that. A day off, a day of rest, a day to untangle until we start to think about how it might collide with our traditions. And that's the challenge, isn't it? Not learning, but unlearning. Not taking on new information, but shaking off the old. Not stepping out, but being afraid of what others might think or do or say. Let's think about what Jesus would think. A day to leave behind the responsibilities and the work that stresses us. Who doesn't want that? A day to step back from materialism. Who doesn't want that? A day for God. A day for family. Who doesn't want that? This is why Jesus said the Sabbath was made for the human family. It's a gift uh, written right here in the heart of God's law. And the historians make it clear. Let me read to you. Fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday, yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. The Jewish Sabbath or day of rest was, of course, Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. That was written by Carl Keating, a a Roman Catholic apologist. Let's read on. Reason and sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these two alternatives, either Protestantism and the keeping holy of Saturday or Catholicity and the keeping holy of Sunday. Cardinal Gibbons said, compromise is impossible. When God says, come out of Babylon, Babylon has fallen. He's talking about leaving behind the teachings and the systems that aren't biblical and don't represent his character and his truth. Burning in hell forever and ever without ending? Why? Why would you believe that if it's not in the word of God? God calls us to follow him with as pure a faith as we can. It's a little bit like the Pharisees having Jesus right in their midst. They see him raise the dead. They see him heal the sick. But they decide to cling to their own ways, even though the truth, capital T, is literally right among them. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Bible says, speaking of earth's last days, that all the world wandered after the beast. Revelation 14, 8, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Revelation 18, 4, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. God invites all of us to follow him in truth, to surrender to his word, to be led by the Holy Spirit. He says, come out of her. That's an invitation. I know some people say, look, I'll change everyone. You can't do that. God knows it can't be done. Even Jesus had to step out of his system of faith, a system of faith that refused to be changed. We can't reform whole churches that have refused to be reformed. And so God says, come out of her. Now, here's what we know for sure. The fact that some of God's people haven't known doesn't mean they're not God's people. Many people just didn't know that Sunday was the Sabbath. They didn't know. Oh, hold on a minute. Just didn't know Sunday was not the Sabbath. They just didn't know that the dead sleep in the grave. They didn't know their bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
But God is leading you or trying to lead you. He says, I've got a plan for you. Come out of her. Come out of Babylon. Don't receive her plagues. Don't receive the mark of the beast. You know, the decision to follow Jesus is the best you'll ever make. As you take steps forward, don't look back. Don't let Satan tempt you to turn back. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, come out. This is Lot, look back. God wants his purposes for you to not be frustrated. One day on Mount Carmel, Elijah the prophet set up an altar and offered a sacrifice. The priests of Baal had done the same thing, believing Baal would send fire from heaven to consume their sacrifice. Didn't happen. Elijah offered a sacrifice, prayed to God. Fire came down from God, burned up the offering, burned up the altar. Elijah then called to the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. What we hear tonight is just like what Elijah said. If God is God, follow him. If God is God, we accept his word and we worship him in spirit and truth. If he's not God, we go our own way. In Elijah's day, what people had done, they hadn't given up on God altogether. They mixed truth and error together. Sounds like today. It's not that people are bad. It's not that they've thrown their Bible away. It's that truth and error have been mixed up. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I'm known of mine. Then he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And he says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I've got a moment to tell you an amazing story. Amar was just a little boy when a napalm attack in Iraq left him disfigured and alone. Badly burned, believing his entire family had perished. He was alone and desperately needed medical treatment. He was adopted by a British member of parliament, took little Amar back to England. It was a huge story at the time. He was raised in privilege, but began to feel isolated in a culture that wasn't his. Things kind of went downhill, so he went out on his own. One day, a man on a platform at a train station got chatting to a stranger. Turned out the stranger was a journalist. The man said, you should do a story about Amar. So the journalist started pursuing Amar, found him, got to know him. Amar said someone in Iraq was trying to get in touch with him. Turns out his mother had learned Amar was alive, interrupted a news broadcast, grabbed the microphone, held up a family. Please, if anybody knows where my son is, help me find him. A man watching felt pity, started searching online, looked for months and located Amar. They were put together. The journalist traveled to Iraq, discovered Amar's mother was alive. They did a DNA test. It was her. Amar traveled to Iraq, met with his mother. What a story. He said, my mother. She said, little Amar, you've come back. Do you remember me? I'm the mother who raised you. She'd never forgotten him. She waited the whole time. It's like our loving heavenly father. He's never forgotten you. He's waiting for you. If you've wanted, come back. If you've never accepted Jesus, do so now. If you need to grow in your faith, grow now. God has been waiting for you. Let me pray for you. Our Father in heaven, we take steps to you tonight. Thank you for all you've done to save us. Keep us now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll see you next time for more on Hope Awakens. Until then, God bless you. That was so interesting, helpful, and insightful, 
man and inspiring all at the same time. How fantastic to know that God has his children everywhere, even in this spiritual Babylon. God is such a wonderful God. He's always calling his children to come. Come to me and have rest of mind, says Jesus. Come and drink. He says through Isaiah the prophet and in Revelation, come out of Babylon, my people. What a God. Rebecca, can you please tell our viewers tonight once again how they can get tonight's free study guide? Sure, Robbie. To get tonight's study guide, all our viewers have to do is go to our website, hopeawakens.com.au, and click on the button that says free offer and follow the instructions. Well, that's it for tonight. Thanks for being with us and join us on Tuesday night at 7.30 p.m. or 7 p.m. Central Australian time for our next program, A Place of Safety. See you then.